Genesis chapter 39, we read here of Joseph's suffering and success. Genesis 39. First, we'll explain the passage, and then the next hour, cover some major topics based on the passage. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. And it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned, in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day, that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, He has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. And it came about when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, that he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to make came in to me to make sport of me, and it happened, as I raised my voice and screamed, that he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now it came about when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, that his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail." But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer 
did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Amen. In this chapter, Genesis 39, we start a long section, Genesis 39 to 50, that comprises the history of Joseph. What happens to Joseph in the land of Egypt? First, we read that he had been taken down to Egypt in verse 39. We saw this about to happen and him being sold as a slave in chapter 37. But between chapters 37 and 39, we have chapter 38, where it takes up what happened to Judah and Judah's lineage and how he had two sons by Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Perez and Zerah. Judah is the son who is the son of the lineage of Christ, but Joseph is the son who's going to preserve the line of Christ. Joseph will preserve the line of Christ, and he will be a model and an example, a better example in his lifetime than Judah, of the way of Christ or the character of Christ. Joseph is that. Well, we pick up on this example of Joseph here in 39. Essentially, we have Joseph in the midst of suffering, experiencing success. That's what we have in chapter 39 and throughout this narrative from 39 to 50, which also parallels Christ. Christ will suffer many times and also have success many times. Ultimately, the, the most uh, suffering is at the cross and the great success is in the resurrection. The same with Christ. Suffering and also exaltation. The same with Joseph, who is a type of Christ. He's taken down to Egypt, and the name of the captain of the bodyguard is mentioned here, Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. So this man is an officer, a nobleman, someone in high ranks helping Pharaoh in his uh, self-protection, a bodyguard. The Ishmaelites, also called the Midianites, Ishmaelites and Midianites, in chapter 39, verse 1, they are called uh, Midianites in chapter 37, 37, verse 36, the last verse. Either way, we're talking about the same group, the same merchants who are from likely the tribe of Ishmael, but living in the land of Midian something of that nature, and so they're known by both names. They bring him to Egypt. Well, when they sold him, they sold him for some money, which, mentions, which it mentions in 3728, 20 shekels of silver, but we're not told how much they sold him for to Potiphar. We're not told that amount. So Potiphar, being a wealthy man, he likely had means to buy whichever slave, and even as he's seeing the slaves available to him in the market, would find one that would be suitable for his household. And in what way? Perhaps handsome, who wants an ugly man in his house all the time, right? Or an ugly woman. That's, not, that's unnatural, especially if you're thinking in terms of the flesh, the world and the flesh. People want... That And we know later in this chapter that Joseph was handsome. Um, Perhaps also his strength, his abilities. He's young enough, perhaps he's strong enough to be able to handle the matters of the household. 
So Potiphar buys him. However, though he was mistreated by his brothers, and though he's mistreated by these traders, these merchants, and though Potiphar is buying him, he's now officially someone's slave. It tells us in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. In the midst of slavery, the Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. In the house of the Egyptian master, Joseph is successful. Though his rank is slavery, his fruit, his prosperity is very evident, very clearly evident to everyone, including the master. The master, in fact, verse 3, it says, His master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. The master even saw, the master realized, the master knew who was blessing him. It says, the master knew that the Lord was blessing him. The master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper. How would the master know that it was the Lord? Well, two reasons. One, uh, different nations, different tribes, they know what other tribes believe and what other tribes worship. They have some idea. They might not know all the details and the specifics, but they do know in some way that people in that nation, they worship in this way and that way. They know things like that. So being a Hebrew, he would have known, it would have been self-evident that Joseph worshipped another god. But also, we know that Joseph, being a godly man, we see, we see evidence of this godliness in this chapter, that being a godly man, he would have explained his beliefs. He would have been one who wouldn't have kept his mouth shut. He would have opened his mouth and explained his beliefs. He would have preached the gospel. And if he preached the gospel, he would have spoken about the Lord. In chapter, uh, in Psalm one hundred and Psalm one hundred five, Psalm one hundred five, we have a couple of verses that mention Joseph and what he said. What he said, Psalm one hundred five nineteen, hundred five nineteen. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. When did? Joseph first speak his word, God's word. That was in chapter 37, in the face of opposition. In the face of his own family, both his parents and his siblings, he had to tell them hard words. He had to tell them words that they did not want to hear. He was courageous enough to do so. He wasn't brash. He wasn't just a a young man who was brash and without any self-control. That's not why he spoke up. He spoke up because he had the Word of God. The dreams that he received were the Word of God that he declared in opposition, in the face of opposition to his family. And meantime, his Word, his Word and God's Word is testing Joseph. How is it going to be that his family will come to bow down before him? That's what he dreamed. And that's what they despised when they heard that in chapter 37. 
We know from that example that Joseph courageously spoke the word of truth, the gospel to his family. Also in verse 22, Psalm 105, 22, after he became Lord of Egypt, the ruler of Egypt, it says in 22, he had the ability to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. He might teach his elders wisdom. That's telling us that Joseph was a teacher of true wisdom to the elders. Joseph was a teacher. Because of these examples, it is not, it's not far-fetched to think that Joseph preached the gospel to his master. And his master made the connection between the gospel that Joseph preached, the way he lived, and the results of Joseph's labors. The results, the fruit of his labors. That's why the master acknowledges that the Lord is with him, not just any God, not just a petty deity, not just one God in a pantheon of gods, but the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. He made the right connection. Verse 4, So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. Because of what the master saw in Joseph, Joseph's character, the way he talked, the way he walked, the way he conducted his duties, the way he carried them out, he did it all very faithfully, with integrity, with great honesty, and the master could trust him. This was unusual, and because it was unusual, the master was able to trust him and make him his personal servant. Personal servant in this matter. And not only that, everything in the household was under Joseph's charge. Would that not put the master's mind at ease? When he has a household with many people and activities going on, being a wealthy man, he would have had many people in the house, a large enough house to, to have all of these things. And so the concern for the well-being, for the orderly manner in which the household was living day by day, it would have been on his mind. Well, that mind is put at ease because he has a right-hand man that's very trustworthy to be able to handle everything in the house. He didn't have to worry. He didn't have to lose sleep over anything in his household. Verse 5, And it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned, in the house and in the field. After Joseph was in charge, he is the house steward now. As the house steward, the Egyptian sees the how God is even more blessing this Egyptian. He saw the character of Joseph. Now he sees that character not only in Joseph's little sphere of influence, however long that was, now he sees it over the whole household and even in the field where his crops are growing because Joseph is in charge of the things that go on in the house and in the field. And whatever the men are supposed to do, 
in the house and in the field. He's in charge of everything. And because he's in charge of everything, this Egyptian, this unbeliever, this unbeliever, this pagan, is receiving the overflow of God's blessing to Joseph. Whatever God's doing in Joseph's life is flowing over into the Egyptians' affairs in his house and in the field. And it's noticeable. He notes it. The Egyptian knows that it is coming from the Lord because of Joseph. We said that this Egyptian is an unbeliever. It's likely, since the text does not tell us about his conversion, that he did not convert. In fact, he believes his wife later in the chapter and throws Joseph in prison. Whether he believed his wife truly or as a matter of show, whatever reason, he still put Joseph in the prison and that shows that he never really converted, never really believed in what Joseph was preaching to the Egyptian. So that means that the Egyptian benefited from Joseph. The Egyptian heard the truth from Joseph, heard about the true God from Joseph, heard the gospel from Joseph, but refused to believe in it. He wanted to receive the physical benefits, the material benefits of Joseph and the blessing of God on Joseph, but he did not want to receive the spiritual benefits. This often happens, that believers will preach the truth, live the truth, and benefit unbelievers, but unbelievers want nothing to do with the believer. Verse 6. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. A summary that Joseph caused peace of mind to the master. He gave him peace of mind. There was no concern about anything in the house except the master wanted to make sure about what he ate, which is natural. Unless somebody has a regular menu and is told, even then, um, appetites change. So that was the only thing on the mind of the master, what he ate. That's all he concerned himself with. Otherwise, he was doing the Pharaoh's business. He was working for Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard for Pharaoh. He was doing that and had no concern in his house, just whatever he wanted to eat. In relation to this, I think in this passage, it's talking about the food itself that he wanted to eat. That's probably what this verse means. However, we notice that the Egyptians were peculiar and we, we might also say they were, um, they were bigoted. Yep. These, these days we use words like racist and bigot. Yep. Well, they were bigoted. In Genesis 43, Genesis 43, 32, it says, 43, 32. So they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. That's loathsome to the Egyptians to eat bread with the Hebrews. This may be a factor too as to why he was only concerned about the food. To make sure 
of, of that. Well, now, verse 6 also says, Genesis 39, 6, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. This is a transitional statement. We know because of the following narrative from verse 7 onward. It's a transitional statement. All is going well because of Joseph's diligence, Joseph's faithfulness, Joseph's love and fear of God. All is going well for him and his master. Joseph even was endowed with handsomeness. He was endowed by God with this, right? right. It's God who gives all, all features, everything in life, physical uh, to everyone. God does so. So it's not an evil thing or a bad thing because God gifted Joseph with this beauty or handsomeness, which probably came from his mother, perhaps also his father, but at least from his mother, because in 29.17, Genesis 29.17, it says that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. That Rachel, his mother, was beautiful. Remember, who were the two sons of Rachel? Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph and Benjamin were her two sons, and therefore he's gifted with this beauty. In Joseph's case, he's a righteous man, and he's not misusing his beauty, his handsomeness. He's not misusing it. In many other cases, which we'll address later, it is abused, it is misused. Handsomeness or beauty is misused, exploited for evil reasons. But in Joseph's case, he did not do so. But why are we told about this? We're told about this because of the wife of Potiphar. We're told about his handsomeness because she saw his handsomeness and wanted him, sinfully wanted him. That's why we're told. We're not told because Joseph did wrong. We're told because it becomes the platform for the lust of Potiphar's wife. That's why we're told about it. Verse 7. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. She, the master's wife, looks with desire at Joseph. She's lusting after Joseph. She has an evil desire for Joseph. She wants him. It's likely the case that she is older than he because he was 17 in Genesis 37, verse 2. Genesis 37, verse 2, it says he was 17 years old when they were pasturing the flock and when the brothers turned against him. When he received the dreams, pasturing the flock, and the brothers turned against him and sold him into slavery. In Genesis 41, 46, 41, 46, when Joseph becomes the ruler of Egypt, he is 30 years old. That means that the events between 37 to 41, 46, take place over a 13-year period, from age 17 to age 30. And we note, we know that if she were older than he, having means and having a household, being married already, she would have looked at the young man as a handsome, 
young man, a strong young man, and all, whatever other things she saw in him, that that's what she wanted. She just lusted after him, though she was already married. And though she had everything else that a woman would want in her house. She had all of the servants and the slaves. She had whatever she wanted. I'm sure she had a big house. And she was guarded well. He's the captain of the bodyguard, protecting Pharaoh, but also protecting whoever else needs to be protected. She had everything in life, yet she was discontent. She was uh, lusting after Joseph. And she has no shame. No shame. She doesn't hint. It, it doesn't say she hinted. It doesn't say she did this or did that in, in some kind of action or whatever. Uh, she, it doesn't say that she set him up so that he might pursue her or something of that nature. She didn't do anything like that. She looks with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. She propositions him, tells him directly what she wants. No shame. Verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? What Moses and the Holy Spirit told us in verses 1 to 6, Joseph says in his own words, that means that Joseph isn't lying. He's not exaggerating his influence and power in the house. He's not doing that. He's telling the truth that everything is in his charge. And the master, my master, has not withheld anything from me. You all know that. We all know that. The only thing he has withheld is you. Notice, except you, he says, verse 9. Why? Why you? Because you are his wife. Everyone knows. It doesn't matter from what nation, what tribe, what language, how old or young you are, everyone knows when there is husband and wife, wife belongs to husband, husband belongs to wife, and to no one else. Everybody knows that. You don't have to be taught the Bible to know that. It's one of those self-evident truths of the Ten Commandments, right? Just like everyone knows it's wrong and evil and criminal to steal someone else's possessions. Everybody knows that. It's wrong. I just can't walk up and go into your house and take something from your house and walk away. Right. And you can't do that in my house. We all know that. It doesn't matter in which nation you live. Everybody knows that. They might suppress it. They might be so callous and hard-hearted that they won't ever admit that and they have no qualms anymore of doing it. That may happen. But everybody knows at least initially knows and will admit that these things are sins. Adultery is a sin and theft is a sin as well as many other sins. They know it's self-evident. So he, Joseph, notice what he's doing here. He's also being courageous with the woman. He's being courageous with the woman. 
Because he's got a dilemma presented to him. He's got a dilemma. Either way, he's going to be a loser. If he succumbs to her temptations, it might be discovered. And he'll have the wrath of the master. And if it's, if it's not discovered and whatever, God one day will hold him accountable. So he's going to deal with the wrath of God. Furthermore, if he resists like he is here, she might turn against him. Isn't that what happens? It often happens that when we don't cooperate with someone else's sin, then that other person will turn against us. And that's what happens here. So he took the chance. Why? Because he wanted to please God. He was bold to tell her the truth and not succumb to temptation and then deal with the consequences trusting God. He trusted God. How do we know he trusted God? Verse 9 tells us, How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? We note, he called it an evil. It's an evil to commit adultery, just like it's an evil to commit any other sin. Sin and evil, these are interchangeable words. It's wrong, it's evil, it's transgression of the commandments of God, it's a transgression of the character of God to do these things. It's evil, right? But also, he says, it's a great evil. A great evil. Is it wrong? To steal a pencil. Yes, it's an evil. It's a sin to steal a pencil. However, is it wrong to steal $10 million? Of course it's wrong. But which evil is greater? A pencil or the $10 million? Both are evil, but which one is a great evil? The $10 million. Is it an evil to murder one man? Yes, We might even call it a great evil. But what if one murders a hundred men? Isn't that a greater evil? Yes. Now, if this concept of greater and lesser evil is new to you, consider the fact that Christ taught this in John 19, John 19, 11. John 19, 11. When Christ speaks to Pilate, he says, John 19, 11, Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. He who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Another place, Luke 11. Luke 11 24, Luke 11, 24 to 26. 11, 24. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. When there was one evil spirit possessing the man, it was bad for the man. 
But then the evil spirit left the man. And then the evil spirit says, listen, I want to go back to that man. But when I go back to him, I'm going to take seven other spirits more evil. So more evil, it says. So that means eight spirits. Even if the eight spirits were of the same in evilness, what, what's worse, having one evil spirit in you or eight evil spirits? Eight. But here it says these seven others are more evil than the first one. More evil than the first one. And that's what Joseph is saying here. It's bad enough, it's evil enough, it's sinful enough that men lust after women and women, uh, women lust after men. That's evil enough. But this great evil would be to actually carry out your lust like this. Don't do this, is what he says. Then verse 9 also. Joseph says he's sinning against God. He would sin against God. He's not primarily concerned about sinning against his body, which it would be. Sinning against the woman, which it would be. Sinning against his master, which it would be. It would be sin in those ways. His primary concern is sinning against God. He had the fear of God and did not want to offend God Almighty, the omniscient God, omnipotent God, omnipresent God. He did not want to offend God. Verse 10, And it came about, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. In 10, she is speaking to him day after day. She's persistent. She's nagging him. Day after day. She won't let up. She won't give up. That's how insatiable and intense, how strong her lust was to do so day after day in the face of his no's. I can't. His refusals. He's refusing all the time, but that doesn't fend her off. That doesn't stop her. It says to lie beside her or be with her. Some take these two phrases to mean the same thing. Not to have intercourse with her. Not to commit adultery with her. Uh, and others take it to mean to lie beside her, to have intercourse with her, or even be with her, meaning he was cautious not to be alone with her in the house. And that's the way I take it. That he was even cautious not to be with her alone in the house. Why? Why take it that way? Because of what happens in the following verses. What happens? One day that happened, and then the danger. It happened. Verse 11. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. No one else is there inside. That's the problem. That's what he tried to avert, being alone with her. Verse 12. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. You may see there in your Bible, lie with me this time is with an exclamation. 
this time with an exclamation. Before, when she first said it, up in verse 7, it simply says, lie with me. And I think that the translators are correct. There, there is no Hebrew way of indicating this. It would have to be according to context. So in the, the context, I think the translators are correct to have an exclamation at this point. Why? Because day after day, she's nagging him. Now she has an opportune time. He's alone. And now she cannot control it. Without this self-control, she bursts herself upon him. And he knew how desperate she was because he fled. So when she says at this time, lie with me, not just lie with me, but lie with me, being alone with him, he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. So that means this time she grabbed him. Lie with me and grabbed him. He left his garment behind. 13. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. And it came about when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. Now she turns against him immediately turns against him. She did not get her evil desire, so now she uses her failure to attack Joseph. This is not unusual. It's very common for sinners to do this. Unrepentant sinners will impose their own sin on the victim, their own sin on the innocent party. They will shift blame and blame the other what they themselves are doing. Sinners do so. She does so here. Immediately to set him up. She calls the men of the house. And when she does so, we also see how she says it. She does not name her husband. She does not say, my husband. She does not say, my Lord, as it says in 1 Peter 3, 6. Godly women like Sarah. Thus Sarah, Abra- uh, thus Sarah called Abraham Lord, obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do so without being frightened by any fear. She didn't use any kind of words like that. She simply says, he, he, he has brought in a Hebrew. She calls him he, but she also blames him. The wife blames her husband. He has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. And verse 17, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us, she tells the husband, you brought to us. Okay? She's shifting blame onto her husband. Also, To us? Well, the only one who is presumed to have been the victim, the wife, she's the only one. But why does she say us? She's trying to hook and and snooker the others to be with her in testimony. 
that not only is Joseph trying to exploit me, the wife, but also all of these others, trying to bring them into this mix and say, Joseph is really against all of us. So all of us, we need to be of one mind united against Joseph. See how evil she is, deceitful she is? Um, Further, we see in 14, she identifies him not by his name, but by his race. A Hebrew. These despicable foreigners, these evil foreigners, these Hebrew people, he's a slave, right? He came here, he's a miserable human being, and yet he's trying to exploit me. That's the way she means it. This Hebrew man came here. Um, By the way, she does literally say Hebrew man. She says Hebrew man, which means that she's also implying, you brought in this young, strong man who has lots of strength, more strength than I do, to exploit me, to make sport of me, to have fun with me? You wanted him to have fun with me? You, my husband? That's what she's implying. This Hebrew man came. But she, she being innocent, tender, undefiled, pure of heart, this is what she says, and then she says, he came to me to lie with me, and I screamed. I screamed. I knew exactly what he was trying to do. And immediately I did what every, every virtuous woman would do. Just scream to get attention so that others would come to her rescue. But nobody was in the house. Everybody was outside. Yeah. Right? Because it says that none of the men were in the house. But she went outside to call them um, into the house to tell them what was happening. She called to the men of her household. Verse 14. And this is what she reports. She leaves the evidence with her. The evidence of the garment. But she's going to exploit it. Misuse it. It says in 16. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And it happened as I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now she lies to her husband. She blames him while reporting it. She blames him and then lies to him about what actually happened. At this point, the husband is in a dilemma himself. He could investigate He could check the facts. He could ask somebody else. He could inquire with Joseph. Right? He could know based on the character of his wife. Because it's unlikely, it's highly unlikely that he didn't know her character. It's quite certain that he knew her character. If not in regards to this at least in regards to other matters, because usually sin isn't isolated. If there is one sin that rises to the surface, that's the one that you see, but there's probably a few other sins below the surface connected to that one sin that you don't see. That's the nature of sin. So 
It's likely the case that he knew what his wife was like. But even if he thought that she was innocent, as an upstanding man, a man of integrity, a man of justice, a man of truth, he should have asked Joseph. He should have asked the other men. He shouldn't have reacted the way he's about to react. Verse 19. Now it came about when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, that his anger burned. Your slave. Your slave that you brought here. It's all your fault. And now he's trying to clear his character with his wife. Which clearing the character with his wife would also have implications for the rest of the household. Because if he can make his wife happy, then she won't gripe and grumble and open her mouth to everybody else and cause more factions and divisions in the household among all the rest of the people, both men and women. Because it is the nature, some men do it, but it is more the nature of women to carp and criticize, to cause divisions, factions like this, by speaking this way and telling people things like this, trying to foment a division and get people on one's side. And he's probably concerned about that. Not only is he probably concerned about that, he's probably concerned about his own sexual relationship with his wife. What's going to happen if I don't believe her and I believe Joseph? So, his anger burned against Joseph unjustly. Verse 20, so Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. The master Potiphar puts him in jail with the rest of the king's prisoners. And we'll learn more about that in the next chapter because there were a couple of other prisoners of Pharaoh, the king, and thrown into that jail and they meet Joseph in that prison. That prison, according to... Chapter uh, 40, verse 3. 40, verse 3, is there in that house. Verse 3. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. Where Joseph was imprisoned was in the house of the captain of the bodyguard. This also is more evidence that the house must have been a a very large house that had compartments or apartments placed for a prison, a jail for um, royal prisoners to be kept there. And that's what happens in this case. Joseph is put there in that very house. And that captain of the bodyguard, who was that? That's Potiphar. 39 verse 1, Potiphar is called captain of the bodyguard. 39 verse 1. 21, verse 21, 39, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Who is with um, Joseph in the jail? God is. God is omniscient, omnipresent, and uh, and omnipotent. God is. And he's with Joseph there. Extending kindness to Joseph there. In the sight of the chief jailer. Now we have a repeat. 
whatever happened in Potiphar's house, Potiphar noticing Joseph's faithfulness, the jailer notices Joseph's faithfulness, his character, his diligence. So verse 22, And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Whatever he did, making sure things got done in the jail, making sure that the other prisoners uh, fell in line, were orderly, did whatever they were supposed to do, Joseph was in charge of it all. He was prosperous in that, successful in doing that, and everyone knew it. Everyone knew the jail was better because of Joseph. And they also knew it came from his Lord. The Lord blessed him and granted him favor. God was with Joseph and will be with Joseph in the midst of suffering. There is success in suffering. This is not only true of Joseph, it's also true of the Christian life. It's true of all of the righteous, Old and New Testaments, and it's true of all the righteous throughout all of history. God is with us in the midst of suffering. Suffering precedes glory. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.